यू आर लिसनिंग टू अमिंट प्रोडक्शन प्रॉट यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट द मार्च ऑफ नाइनटीन नाइनटी वन वॉज अ टर्निंग पॉइंट इन इंडिया हिस्ट्री द चंद्रशेखर गवर्नमेंट प्रेजेंटेड एन इंटरम बजट ऑन द फोर्थ ऑफ मार्च फाइनेंस मिनिस्टर यशवंत सिन्हा स्पोक इन द बजट स्पीच ऑफ अ फ्रेजाइल इकोनॉमिक सिचुएशन एंड अ माइक्रो इकोनॉमिक क्राइसिस बट कुड नॉट टेक करेक्टिव स्टेप्स रिक्वायर्ड बिकॉज द गवर्नमेंट वॉज पोलिटिकली टू वीक बाई मे नाइनटीन नाइनटी वन इंटरनेशनल रेटिंग to below investment grade. India was on the brink of default on its international obligations. something that had never happened before mr sinha authorized the state bank of india to sell 20 tons of gold from the government of india's stock to the union bank of switzerland he also authorized negotiations for pledging 47 tons of gold from the reserves as collateral for a loan of 600 million dollars from the bank of japan and the bank of england they insisted that the gold should be physically shipped to their vaults in london On 21st June 1991 a new government headed by P V Narasimharao was sworn in. It brought the crisis under control and reversed the economic policies of interventionism India had stuck to in the first four decades post independence. These decisions changed the Indian economy unimaginably. Welcome to India's reform story. I'm your host Pooja Mehra. I'm an independent journalist and podcaster and the author of The Lost Decade 2008 to 18: How India's Growth Story Devolved into Growth Without a Story. India's Reform Story is a seven-part podcast in a series of seven conversations with economists, policymakers and commentators. I will unpack the story behind India's reforms and find out what went on behind the scenes and how successive prime ministers from Atal Bihari Vajpayee to Narendra Modi have taken these reforms forward. Few people realize how irrational the Indian economic control system before 1991 was. If a weaving mill for instance wanted to replace an aging loom, it needed specific permission from the textile commissioner. Why? To protect employment. I asked Dr. Rakesh Mohan about the license permit raj and the command and control economy and how much of it was dismantled after 1991. We also talked about how important proposals moved back then remain pending even today 30 years later. Dr. Rakesh Mohan was an economic advisor in the Industry Ministry from 1988. He was among those who worked on the dismantling of industrial controls in 1991. Later Prime Minister Vajpayee's government appointed him as its chief economic advisor and then deputy governor of the Reserve Bank of India. Dr. Manmohan Singh's government appointed him Secretary Economic Affairs in the Finance Ministry. Many of my listeners were born after the year 2000. Dr. Rakesh Mohan, could you please explain for them why the industrial control system before 1991 was irrational and dysfunctional, and then briefly also the steps that were taken to remedy it in 1991? Of course, also the process was completed later, so that we have an understanding of the before and the after comparison. Okay, so I'll need to give perhaps a broader background, in some sense first of why those controls existed in the first place soon after independence in the as we started with the first five year plan in the 19, early 1950s and it, there was there was a general view i would say the dominant view in development strategy globally was that poor countries which have almost all been colonies to be able to grow you need to protect industry that the the path to growth was industrial development 
And because almost all developing countries, including certainly India, were very poor with low education, health and everything else, low technical ability, etc. The general view was that you need to do import protection because there was export pessimism and because there was no way that poor countries could actually export manufactured goods and there was no way they could compete with imports coming from then developed countries. So the overall general view was that you have to therefore protect yourself and have import restrictions. That's number one. Number two, in that context, if you wanted to then accelerate economic development, manufacturing, industrial development, you therefore, in the recognition that you have limited savings in the country on a macro basis, that if you're going to set up new activities, you then have to channel them to desirable activities. Hence planning. Number three, that because the market is limited in the country, that you then want to have an idea that you only provide licenses that is permission for specific industries up to some limit so that you don't waste resources. Hence industrial licensing. That is you, everyone then had to come to get permission to set up an industrial plant, manufacturing plant, and you got a license to produce say 10,000 cars or 5,000 refrigerators or whatever. So that you're not, you don't waste resources. I'm just giving you all the rationale that was there. And everything is therefore connected. It was a rational whole in the context of the understanding that you can't compete. You have limited resources and therefore these resources have to be husbanded carefully. Because of the history of the East India Company, which first came to India as a company and then later on became a colonizer, there was a generally hostile view to foreign direct investment and both in India and elsewhere because in many countries, the foreign direct investment was connected mining, etc. And essentially, therefore, extraction and extraction of, of raw materials being sent off to the other country to manufacturers, which would then be exported back to you. And so there was a hostile view for a foreign direct investment and hence control on foreign direct investment. Similarly, there was also a view that you didn't want domestic large companies to be monopolistic and have too much economic power. Hence, there was limitation on what large companies could do, which products they could enter, and therefore they were not allowed to enter many products. Connected with that was the view that because we had so much labor, the view was that simple technology products, mostly consumer goods, can therefore be produced by small enterprises. The view was that these products had no economies of scale and because they were large employers and therefore you reserved them for small scale industries. But, but because you didn't have technology, you had to import technology, but because you had shortage of foreign exchange, that had to be licensed by the government and the government had to limit how much royalty you would pay for that technology. And so that was also, you had to get permission from the government, that is the Ministry of Industry, to get any technology. And finally, because of the limited savings, private company couldn't float public issue because the view was a limited savings. So I will license who can tap public savings through a new IPO. And I will also dictate the price of that. So I sort of try to give you the rationale for all this. There's also a view that we need to accelerate our development and therefore also get into more complex industrial areas. Uh, and that is where the commanding heights of the public sector comes in. Because the private sector doesn't have enough savings, doesn't have financial resources, doesn't have technology, and therefore government should come in. And again, you shouldn't waste resources by other people coming into those areas. And so you reserved 
almost all large industries, steel, heavy electricals, etc., to the public sector. So that was a whole kind of, I would say, a logical whole. So that is the 1950s. Of course, the big MRTP Act came in 1969, much, much later. But nonetheless, what happened over time was that this theory was okay, but it wasn't the case that, for example, say industrial licensing, it wasn't the case you said, I'm going to now license production of refrigerators. And then you have 15 applications that come in and you then hand out three with, for, for the amount of capacity you want. In fact, the way it happened, things come sequentially. So one entrepreneur thinks I want to produce refrigerators today. Someone else comes in five years later, etc. Second, you don't, you never have enough knowledge actually what to license. And so what happened is that over a period of time, then in 50s, 60s, 70s, this whole system got very rigid and dysfunctional. And so in fact, that even when demand for things went up, there was shortage of, say, cars, for example. I can tell you personally, when I came back from abroad in uh, 1980. There were only about 30,000 cars produced a year at that time. And to get a Fiat 1100, which later became Padmini 1100, you couldn't get it for 10 years or something of that order. Because shortage of foreign exchange, you could get a preferential allotment if you paid in foreign exchange. So my point is that it became totally dysfunctional in the sense that even when there's excess demand, you're not licensing anything for higher production. And you actually, there were many cases where, where companies were actually penalized for producing more than they were licensed. Just to say two things here. One, the system is putting so much faith in the ability of the bureaucrat to and the politician, the government to decide how much should be produced and what should be produced and who should get a license. And, you know, you're penalizing companies for doing well and growing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's why it's irrational, dysfunctional, even though theory might have been very intentioned to begin with, but the actual practice and application was clearly faulty. And it started becoming clear in the 60s. And that's one of the very curious things that they kept on appointing committees to examine the system, how it is working. Each committee said it was working very badly. And these are all bureaucrat committees, by the way. They were not outsiders. They were all inside government committees. It's fascinating to read these committee reports. They describe in detail how badly the system was running. But then each conclusion, very interestingly, was, but we have to make it tighter and make it work better. Which is bizarre, actually, which I could never understand uh, why that happened. It was not outsiders saying, look, you're doing badly. It was insiders saying we're doing badly. Over a period of time, two things happened. One, internally, you could see that there was shortage of everything. And I remember, again, in the um, early to mid-1970s, when the first part of this house where I'm now sitting was built by my father. For an individual house, you had to get a permit to get the cement from the cement controller of India. You had to get a permit for the steel that goes into a house from the steel controller, whatever he was called. And so I'm just telling you the absolute illogic and irrationality of this, that for a retail, simple house that you're building, you have to go off and get a permit to get it. This was sort of across the board in so many things. And people were used to getting permits. And therefore, huge amount of corruption that you, you obviously is there a shortage, corruption would arise. On the other side, of course, from the private industrialist point of view, the industrialist core competence, the Indian private sector's core competence became the ability to get a license because that's what they were forced to do. It is not important to invest in technology because you'll, you'll get a foreign technology permit and get the foreign technology. They invested nothing in technology. 
the core components was getting a license. Because once you got a license, you could produce. And by the way, as a side comment on this, you will notice that even today, we have a legacy of this. That Indian private sector loves licenses. So you open a telecom license regime, everyone lines up and bids excessively to get a license. You open coal licenses, everyone lines up and bids excessively for coal licenses. You open banking license, everyone lines up to get a bank. So you do PPPs, people line up to get a license. So that's an aside from the past. So anyway, so to explain to people that what had happened over time was that the system had got more and more sclerotic and there was more and more understanding that it becomes sclerotic. The two other important things happened. One was that starting in the late 60s, early 70s, mid 60s to late, mid 60s to mid 70s, there was a big change in international development thinking, essentially not because of theorists, much more because of the practice that uh, East Asian countries showed, particularly South Korea and Taiwan, that you would actually export manufactured goods. And so there was a big change in the 60s and 70s in thinking to do with development, moving towards freer trade, openness, uh, less of planning, etc., less of control, etc. So that was the, the sort of external environment which, which changed, which led to changes in thinking in India as well, but slowly. And we were much slower than many other countries in following. Finally, the third thing that happened, uh, um, which was late, late 80s uh, and culminating in 1990, was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we changed then. So we were about, I would say, 15 to 20 years late in changing than what we should have to what was then done in 1991 and beyond. It's a long answer to a short question. And then, you know, what were the steps taken to dismantle this rigid system and useless system in many ways? So what happened was that, interestingly, that even though it was Mrs. Gandhi who had actually tightened the system between the time that she came to power, I guess it was 1967, to the time that she went out of power, 1977, she is the one who really tightened it and made it sclerotic over that period uh, of time. When she came back to power in 1981, late 1980, in the uh, five years or so in the early 80s, a number of committees were appointed, all headed by civil servants, uh, on trade, on public sector, etc. And each one of them recommended liberalization of to some level, not not what we did in 91, because that was much more uh, comprehensive. They recommended small steps, but all of them were in the same direction. Second, there used to be something called the Bureau of Industrial Costs and Prices. So for many of these things that I mentioned, cement, steel, of course, all the drugs, copper, many other, many commodities, all controlled. Because they were controlled, the prices had to be regulated. So the Bureau of Industrial Costs and Prices uh, did all kinds of calculations in terms of profitability, et cetera, et cetera, and said this is the price uh, that, that you can charge. And what happened then in the 80s under successive uh, BICP, Bureau of Industrial Cost Prices chairman, they gave out reports suggesting liberalization of these prices, decontrol of these prices. This is very, very little known, very much less known uh, on, on this count, but that happened under Labraj Kumar, who was uh, BICP chairman, I think in the early 80s, 
then Yuvinder Alag, and then uh, Vijay Kelkar. Each one of them, just each report uh, proposed the deregulation of sector by sector as the sector come, came for a review. So the point is that through the 1980s, there was this slow movement. And of course, as I said earlier, this was going on internationally anyway. But there was slow domestic movement towards liberalization. Then uh, 1989 end, when the VP Singh government came in, even though VP Singh was a, had been in the Congress for all his life, except when he defected and then became prime minister, but because it was a non-Congress government, there was a lot of political pressure that we have to do something different from the previous Congress regimes. And therefore, the general, we have to do something different. And uh, Mr. Ajit Singh was appointed as an industry minister under Mr. V.P. Singh. Mr. Ajit Singh he was the son of Charan Singh, who had been prime minister uh, in, in, in 1780. Mr. Ajit Singh, however, had just returned from the U.S. He had actually worked for IBM uh, and so on. And he was, he was a technocrat, uh, although being Charan Singh, he was sort of, he was a, a farmer origin, but he was a technocrat. And he became industry minister. People don't know this, but he is, why do we have all these controls? And uh, so we started work, I was an economic advisor, ministry of industry. So as a consequence of that, we started working on, we said, ah, I had done some, I'd written some papers anyway on this issue. I'd studied all this stuff. So, and Mr. Bar- A.N. Verma was the industry secretary. And we said that we have to, uh, here's the opportunity, let's do something. And so actually it was in 1909, we, we prepared a whole document. It was laid on the table in parliament by Ajit Singh in, I think, in May 1990. And, but then various political things happened, which I've described in my uh, chapter in the book, India Transformed. So I won't go into the detail, but it's answering your question, how did this happen? So there, there was a sort of pressure of ideas which had been growing over time and interestingly, mostly within the government. And that is what is fascinating, actually. Second, uh, non-Congress government coming in, even though it was a short period of time, like a year. And third, of course, we have the crisis, 1990 Rao government comes in. You have to take actions because of the crisis. We had everything ready. And so what, what happened was that, if I remember correctly, the government came in May, I think late May or something. And because everything was ready, we, we could produce a fully reasoned document within six weeks. And which was then uh, laid in Parliament on July 24, 1991, the same morning, the budget used to be in the afternoon at that time, same morning uh, of the budget was placed in Parliament. And then, of course, the consequential legislations, etc., were done, were done later. But the point I wanted to make is that it had actually been almost a year and a half in preparation. Therefore, all the homework had been done so that it, it, it could answer almost every question that anyone could raise. And oh, what did it propose to do, that anybody could produce as many cars or as, yeah, ma- as so, many bags of yeah, cement as yes, they like? So, so what was done was that there was, that what had happened in the 1980s was some some incremental, what we call de-licensing. So what was done in one shot in 1991 was that uh, we said everything is now de-licensed. You don't need to get licensed from the government, except from, for some short list which was maintained, number one, so that you no longer would have to come. You just had to file what was called investment intention in the industry ministry, but you had to get no permission. So it was just a complete overhaul, actually. There was just some short, there was a short list. Second, 
you had to no longer uh, get permission uh, from the government to do a foreign collaboration, foreign technology agreement. Also, that you could negotiate your own royalty payments up to a limit without having to come to the government. Foreign direct investment, FDI had been limited earlier. That was freed uh, up to 51% initially, except certain sectors where you would have to come to the government to get permission. The MRTP Act was actually abolished. And I can give you a vignette on this, which is that when we were doing the policy, we didn't have the courage in some sense as technocrats to say abolish this thing. So we said that increase the size of the company, which will come under this limitation of the MRTP Act, where you have to get a special permission to produce anything. We said increase it from, I think it was 200 crores. I forget the numbers now. We said increase it to 1,000 crores. As it happened, the Minister of State for Company Affairs was uh, Mr. Arangarajan Kumaramangalam at that time. He asked me, why? what's the rationale for 1,000 crores? I said, there's no rationale. It's just increasing the size a lot. So the very few companies will then be left. Then why do you abolish it? I said, yeah, we should abolish it. And so it is abolished. Of course, that had to be legislated. So because there was no rationale to saying go from this to this. Uh, so that was abolished. Then uh, on the trade side, the uh, liberalization was more uh, gradual because you obviously couldn't subject. We, we were conscious they didn't want to disrupt Indian industry. And so there was an announcement by Mr. Chitambaram as a commerce minister that we were going to liberalize trade. And so, but that was done uh, uh, more incrementally, but the, but the intention was made very clear. Uh, the controller of capital issues was abolished, but that was not part of the industrial policy originally of the finance ministry. So all of those things were done in one shot. Actually. So you removed the entry barriers and on ability of companies to grow. Yes. Uh, what about the exit policy? Uh, was it also proposed and removed by Prime Minister uh, Narasimha Rao because it was seen to be uh, politically a hot potato? Well, I don't have much of a recollection of that being discussed as part of the industrial policy. What was mentioned uh, by the finance minister in his budget speech, and there are some reflections of that in the industrial policy statement, that uh, care would be taken to protect labor. And uh, basically we talk about industrial restructuring, that we, what we were aware of was that as we did all this uh, freeing of licensing, increasing competition, both uh, from the point of domestic competition, foreign competition through FDI, and foreign competition through increased openness of trade, that it would cause difficulties to some parts of domestic industry. Now, two things were done. Uh, one was that there was a one-shot or actually two-shot devaluation at the same time. And so and that, that was conscious in the sense that so, so as you were removing the protection from, from imports by devaluing, you actually uh, uh, compensated for opening the imports and reducing the import tariffs and eliminating the quantitative controls. And so that was very much part of consciousness. By doing this, you were protecting Indian industry from disruption. Now, the discussion on, quote, exit policy came a bit later after these policy announcements, uh, nine, late 91, 92, actually. I would say in retrospect that uh, the use of the term exit policy was unfortunate because, you know, exit is very threatening. It's like dying. You know, you're exiting the world. 
I think the the use of it, we never, actually, we never used the word exit policy. It was the media which used exit policy, and we didn't dispute it in some sense. So it, that was a bit unfortunate. We always used to talk about industrial restructuring. And uh, I have written elsewhere uh, on that uh, there was conscious thought given to it. We got a cabinet approval. Uh, cabinet did approve something called the National Renewal Fund, whose idea was that as workers uh, would lose their jobs if, if industries were being restructured, that A, they would get uh, compensation, 45 days per year, sir, if I remember correctly, uh, of pay. So that you get some compensation uh, if you lose your job. And second, schemes for retraining, etc. All that was approved by the cabinet. There was even a World Bank loan approved for it. Then later on, uh, the government resiled on it and, it, and it didn't get put into practice. But the whole idea was th- thinking had gone into industrial restructuring. And the idea was that you smoothen the process out by giving assurance to labor that, look, we are protecting you. We're looking after you and that we've thought about it. And this particular reform, ha- uh, is this the one that finally got uh, done by the Modi government with uh, Mr. Arun no, Jaitley, no, no, financial no, sorry, minister? Sorry. This, this reform has not been done by anyone so far. What has been done correctly uh, by the Modi government is the insolvency and bankruptcy code. So there was not much of discussion to my recollection in those early years. What was done was that we had done some studies in my office, the Economic Advisor's Office and the Ministry of Industry on the consequences and what could happen to sick industries, etc. And so if my memory serves me right, it was more in the late 1990s. I think it was either is one of the intermediate governments in Devagoda or Gujarat, but I don't have a full memory of this. But certainly when I think Mr. Chidambaram was a finance minister, that there was some proposal for amending the Companies Act, uh, which in fact Umkar Goswami had worked uh, very closely on that. There were some drafts done for amending the Companies Act. Uh, because from our studies in, the, in my office, we had shown how long it takes for bankruptcy in India. And they really didn't have bankruptcy professionals. Uh, it wasn't, they, everything used to go to the high court. It was a, we, we actually documented all this in our studies, which then led to a lot of discussion and the possibility of amending. But quite frankly, the kind of act that was enacted by the Modi government was, was not put in place. Uh, one thing I would mention is that we actually had a committee on industrial restructuring, if I remember the name correctly, headed by Mr. Jagmohan Bajaj, who was an additional secretary in the planning commission. He had been additional secretary in Ministry of Finance. Very, very smart person, real gem. And there we had suggested all these things, but it had not come to the actual stage of drafting the kind of bankruptcy act, insolvency bankruptcy act that had been passed now. And my view, this has come about at least 20, or 25 years too late. Dr. Patel has written his book. He spoke of the dilution of the IBC Act. So, uh, you know, would you like to say, uh, you know, a little on whether the dilution is correct or we need to stick with reforms and we need to stick with IBC? No, we absolutely need to stick with this. There's no question in my mind. But there's no question that uh, we need to stick with this. We need to have an orderly process of if companies become non-performing assets. uh, it's, It's a very simple thing in some sense conceptually that companies go bankrupt the activities don't, okay? Let me put this in a simple example. When a airline company, for example, uh, goes bankrupt, nothing happens to the aircraft. The aircraft exists. Nothing happens to the pilots. The pilots live. 
nothing happened to the stewardesses, they live. Nothing happened to ticket agents, they live, and so on. So what you want is the company to go out, but someone else taking over that company to make use of all the assets that exist, whether it's human assets, whether it's physical assets, and to be then re- reworked and restructured to then become productive again. The in-principle point is that when businesses get into trouble, what you want is an orderly uh, exit, if I may use that word again, of the company, but not of the activities, physical and human assets. You want those reworked. Now, it will happen, of course, in some cases where the, the, the product that that company or the service that, that company is providing becomes obsolete. Right. So if you're manufacturing typewriters, take an obvious case, there's no way that's going to be revived. Right. So then that activity goes completely. So then what you want is a process by which the bankruptcy takes place. But there's some process by which particularly the human assets that you help in reorganizing so that obviously some people can retire over some particular age. Others then have to be redeployed. So you need to have policies which help them being redeployed. And so when we started the National Renewal Fund proposal in 1993-94, we had proposed that a part of the fund will go into retraining activities. But I have to say that worldwide, retraining is not easy to organize. And in fact, see, this is one of the issues that, uh, that, that the U.S. economy has been subject to, that with the rapid uh, decline in many of their manufacturing industries, that a lot of the concern has been, and then you sort of blame China for that. It's not China. It is just you don't have adequate procedures, policies, etc., to redeploy the labor that is being displaced. And so it's not easy. But that is what you've got to take care of. But it's not helped. And the important point is that if you don't have an orderly insolvency and bankruptcy code, which quickly lets companies go bankrupt, someone else taking them over, etc., if you don't have that, you will keep making losses anyway. So you're not, you're not helping anyone. So I'll give you a specific example here, which is what we worked on intensively at that time, that because in particularly in Mumbai and Ahmedabad, Many textile mills had not been working for 20 years, 15, 20 years. They were completely bankrupt. Because the, the, the bankruptcy law was such, they, they didn't go to bankruptcy. Second, the labor laws were such that people couldn't be fired. Okay, But no one was being protected. They were not working. They were just like jungles, actually. And so the workers were not getting any money. They were not fired. But the company had no money to give them. So that's the, in some of the easiest example to give. That what happens? If you don't have these policies, the labor is not being protected. The entrepreneur is not being protected because he's losing uh, his equity anyway. Uh, the only thing is he hopes that someday he'll come back and make use of that land, etc. And that he, he, he then has to pay off his loans. So the banks and the taxpayers end up suffering. Absolutely. The Insolvency and Bankruptcy Act, as I've already said, is something that should have been 20 years earlier. And so it's very welcome. But you have to operate it. And now, of course, it is suspended for the time being. And also, is the, the whole implementation of it has had many problems because it has to operate quickly. Let's turn now to the outcomes of the reforms. Did they produce faster, more inclusive and sustainable growth? The growth rate in the economy in the three decades prior to the 1980s had averaged 3.5% per year. It improved to 5.6% in the 1980s. 
partly because of the few corrective measures that had been taken in the 1980s, but mostly fueled by excessively expansionary fiscal policies. That acceleration, therefore, was not sustainable. In the first five years of the post-crisis period, that is 1992-93 to 1996-97, the economy grew at 6.5%, which was significantly better than the 1980s. Growth slowed again to 5.4% in the next six years, 1997-98 to 2002-03. Most analysts agree this loss of pace reflected the impact of the East Asian crisis and the worsening investment climate. Before the global financial crisis of 2008, of course, growth again picked up spectacularly to 8.7%. This acceleration was helped by a global boom as well as the cumulative positive impact of reforms by successive governments. There are questions of sustainability, be it forest cover, air, soil or water quality, all of which is deteriorating. There's also the question of crony capitalism. Some gains on the inclusive front, though, have been documented. In the 11-year period immediately following the reforms from 1993-94 to 2004-05, the percentage of population in poverty reduced. But because total population increased, the absolute number of Indians in poverty increased marginally. From 2004-05 to 2011-12, though, there was very sharp reduction in the absolute numbers as well. From 407 million in 2004-05 to 269 million in 2011-12. But can these gains be sustained? especially when even the high-growth years did not produce quality income opportunities and jobs in adequate numbers. An important dimension of inclusiveness is access to health and education for large portions of the population on which India's record remains poor. Neither the private sector nor the government have been able to step up to this challenge. The reforms have been a resounding success, though, in unleashing entrepreneurial freedom and expanding the corporate sector by leaps and bounds. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.